Good morning, saints. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So this morning, the Lord has uh, put on my heart to speak on something that's very, very important uh, for each of us as we walk with the Lord. And that is the promises that God gives us in his word. The promises of God bring us great comfort and support in the trials that we face. The promises of God calibrate our thinking so we can think clearly about our brief life and what is ahead. Ultimately, they help us to have a correct worldview for what's around us. They give us an eternal perspective. And they help keep us aligned with the truths in God's word. Now here's the catch with the promises that we have in scripture. Sometimes we misappropriate promises that are given. We incorrectly apply them to our lives. So this morning we're going to talk about the promises of God, examine a few of them. But also talk about how, in general, to correctly understand these promises that we encounter. We want to avoid the extreme of taking everything that we see and saying, that's mine, I'll take that. But we also want to avoid the other extreme of not claiming the promises that are given to us or even misunderstanding the promises themselves, the nature of these promises. So let's begin this morning with a very well-known and cherished verse. It's in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It's a promise that is given in the Old Testament. This is going to be kind of our test case. We're going to examine this one. And then we're going to look at a few promises, three promises of God, in light of examining this passage. Now, I think it's safe to say that there are probably lots of homes in America that have this verse on the wall somewhere. Or it might be somewhere else where you see it regularly. We love this verse. We love this statement for what it says. Here's what the verse says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now, who's not going to like that statement? It's completely understandable how this is a very popular and beloved verse. But we do well to stop for a moment and understand a few things about this statement. Because if all we know is what we see, that one verse out of context, we can misunderstand it. So a few words right off the bat. You might have heard words such as hermeneutics, exegesis. The word hermeneutics is a term that simply means 
the principles that govern how we read and understand God's word. This would actually be true in any setting, not just the Bible, but especially the Bible. There are a few governing principles that we should keep in mind. One word is exegesis. Big word, I know. But here's all it means. It sounds like excavate. Think of it this way. You're going to a verse or you're going to the text in the Bible and you are going to excavate. You're going to bring out the truth of God that is in that statement or that passage. What we want to avoid is the opposite, which we can do often, which is we bring our ideas to the text and we read the text through our lens. That is, we kind of automatically just make it, you know, all about us, right? That word is called eisegesis. Just remember, I, it's all about me, eisegesis. So we want to avoid both, or we want to avoid eisegesis, and we want to major on exegesis. That is, getting out of the text all of the rich truth that God has for us. So along those lines, let's look at three very helpful steps that we should all consider when reading God's word. And specifically, when appropriating the promises that we find in the Bible. So here's the first one. The first step is to clearly understand what the original message was of the original author to the original audience. We call that context. Understanding the context to what we are reading is so important. Here are some questions that you might want to ask. What was the writing style of the original author in the Bible? The Bible is full of different types of genres. Who was the author writing to? What is the cultural context of the people who were, who were receiving this message? How did they communicate at the time? Remember, whenever you read anything in your Bible, there literally are thousands of years in between you and those original words when they were penned. Now here's the second step. Very similar, very connected to the first one. You want to ask this question. What were the circumstances of these particular people who were receiving this word, who were receiving perhaps this promise? Was there a specific reason why the author had to write to them in the first place? Were there difficulties or challenges that they were facing? Was there sin that they were dealing with and needed to put behind them? We call all of this the occasion. What was the occasion of the writing? Knowing that helps us understand 
how we are to understand the text. You do not need a seminary level degree for this. This is how you would, how you would approach really anything, any text at all, but especially God's word. Now here's the third step. And this perhaps is the most important one. You'll see a bridge in the, in the graphic of this slide. The most important step for the preacher, the teacher, or any of us who are reading God's word, seeking to understand it, is this. Build a bridge from the original recipients of the letter and build that bridge to the contemporary audience now. So this is what was happening back then when it was written. Take the principles, the truth from what was said, build a bridge and help us understand it in 21st century, in our case, America. Here are some key questions to ask. Is the promise that is made in this text applicable to anyone and everyone beyond the original recipients? Is there a principle that we can apply today? Even if it was very specific then, is there a principle that we can take for our own? Even if we are not in the same circumstances, obviously, we're not in the same time. Can we apply the truth of this text to our lives? And most importantly, can we claim it as our own? So let's go back to our beloved verse. Jeremiah 29. And we're going to look at a little bit of context. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 is the part that you know. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Verse 12, then. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You see, when we isolate verse 11 we don't see the entire context. The context is seeking God with our whole heart, not with a divided heart, not seeking God or serving him in a haphazard way, but seeking him diligently. It is not passive engagement. So we know right off the bat that we really shouldn't use this verse, forgive this term, as just like a magic charm to put around us. There's an immediate context to this verse, but there's more. You might know that Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was the prophet assigned to Israel during their captivity 
in Babylon. So here's the backstory. God made a covenant, a promise with Israel. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And it goes like this. If you serve me, if you worship me, if you love me, if you love your neighbor, all of those key things, I will bless you in ways that you cannot even fathom. You cannot even begin to understand how I will bless you. And I will bless you in a temporal sense. You will be blessed financially in a material sense. But then the remainder of that chapter, the majority of that chapter, essentially says this, Deuteronomy 28. If you turn away from me, if you ignore me, if you prostitute yourself with the other so-called gods, if you live your life for yourself and not for me, I will actively oppose you. If you know your Old Testament, you know the wretched story of the Israelites. Generation after generation after generation turned away from God. And not just passively. I mean, they went after the neighboring gods. This is the context that the Lord makes this statement through Jeremiah. Judgment has come. They are experiencing what the Lord told them would happen. It was a very conditional promise. In the midst of their heartache, in the midst of them asking, where is God? He reminds them of his heart for them. He reminds them of his disposition towards them. He reminds them that they have brought this calamity that they are experiencing upon themselves. There is no one to blame but them alone. Jerusalem is in ruins. Indeed, it was Jeremiah who would tell them that their captivity would be 70 years. The conditions that God had with Israel are so important to understand in this passage. It was 100% conditional. You do your part and I will bless you in ways you cannot even imagine. Turn from me. And I don't mean just make a mistake one day, but if you turn away from me, I'll bring judgment on you. So in a general sense, can we claim this promise for ourselves? Sure, but very, very cautiously. We have to understand the original promise had an original context, and we are not living in that context, nor are we that people. 
Is the Lord's disposition towards us that of love and kindness and mercy? Yes, a thousand times yes. But just remember what the passage is actually speaking to. We are not promised an easy life. But we are promised that he will never leave us. And he will never forsake us. So now let's look at three promises. That's like our little background. And I don't want to pour cold water on that verse. But I do want you to understand the context and understand why it's said to understand it correctly. So let's look at a few uh, promises this morning and apply these principles to them. So here's a very, here's another very important, very um, popular statement. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We love that statement. Of course we do. This is a statement that Paul makes. And it was his confidence in the character of God that drove this statement. The specific verse is found in Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 13. I invite you to turn there. I can do all things. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. This gives us such confidence. It gives us a sense that God is with us. And we can accomplish what is before us. You'll notice the sports theme graphic. This will most often pop up. I think athletes probably use this more than anyone. And sometimes the subtle message is we're going to win tomorrow. We Washington fans, by the way, have given up on this a long time ago. But we're going to beat you tomorrow. I'm going to win because God is with me. Sometimes it's a simple acknowledgement that the Lord is with us. He's going to bless us and we love that. As we seek to honor him. But what is this statement actually saying? There's a very important context to what Paul is writing. And it actually has zero to do with athletic events. And everything to do with how Paul conducts his daily life. So remember Paul's story. Before Paul was a Christ follower. Paul lived a very comfortable life. He was well off financially. He was well respected. He actually encountered eh, a lot less difficulty than he does at the time of this writing. But when Paul began following Christ... As a Christian, in the role that God had for him, Paul's life became very difficult. Lots of persecution, uncertainty, humanly speaking, and even poverty. 
So in this passage, Paul is personally thanking the Philippians for their concern for him. They've taken note of the fact that Paul is living in a very difficult circumstance. He did not make a big issue out of this. He made this statement. He said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. As I follow the Lord, if I have plenty, wonderful. If I am in want, wonderful. Because my contentment is in the Lord. In fact, he specifically says, I'm not writing this to draw attention to my current needs. But the fact is, times were difficult for Paul. He is expressing his confidence in the character of God. That if God has put a challenge before him, God is going to see him through this challenge. This is not just about our personal flourishing in any circumstance all the time. Please note, in the very next verse, Paul thanks them for their participation in helping him. He is acknowledging his dependence on other believers. He is extolling the idea that we should all work together. That's discipleship. That God is going to see him through every difficult circumstance that is in his path as he serves the Lord. So can we apply this verse today? Absolutely. But again, with caution. As you and I are faithful to serve the Lord in the context of fellow believers supporting one another, we know that the Lord will help us through specific situations as we obey him and serve him. We should not apply this to our lives if we're simply saying that we, we can do whatever we want and God's somehow going to help us. This is all about obedience to serving the Lord. Now let me say this. We encounter difficulties in life that may not be directly connected to our testimony. When we face challenging times, 100% we lean on the Lord and we trust him. But I just want you to see the big picture. Because honestly, in the West, we have a tendency to make it all about me. My life is going to be comfortable. My life is going to be pain-free. And that is not given us in Scripture. Now let's look at a second precious promise. This one has to do with temptation. We know, living five seconds in this world, we know that there are temptations all around us. We know that our natural bent at times can be to follow that which indulges our own flesh. Peter said that the lusts of the world will war against our soul. He said, abstain from them. Do not live like the world lives. So when it comes to temptation... 
particularly when it comes to our own personal weaknesses. We need a strong word from the Lord to help us through it. And saints, we have that very special word. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 together. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out, the way of escape, that you may be able to fully endure it. Now, that's a tremendous statement. What's the context? What is chapter 10 all about? Well, the key concept is he reaches back to the Old Testament and he says, do not be idolaters like our forefathers were in the wilderness. The Israelites faced many temptations to turn away from God and sadly, they succumbed to most of them. We Christians similarly face many temptations in life. We are to put away our old habits of living in which we indulge the flesh and in which we lived for ourselves, for our own pleasure. In every way, we are to put on Christ. We are to live godly and upright lives in this world. Even though those around us are following their lusts as they are today. It is in this context that we find this precious statement. It is indeed a precious promise for you and for me. It's also instructive. He says, don't put yourself in the path of temptation in the verses before this. Do not go to a place where you know you are going to be tempted to do wrong. As scripture says elsewhere, flee temptation. But as you follow Christ, as you determine to honor him with your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions, the Lord is faithful to help you in every single temptation that you encounter. And contrary to what we often say to ourselves, we are not the exception to the rule. Nothing that you face in life, temptation-wise, is uncommon to those around you. In every such circumstance, God will give you a way of escape. So let's apply a little bit of what we've looked at today. What was the promise made to the original recipients? God is faithful. He will help you. The context shows us this is a precious 
verse for you and for me. Claim this promise. If you have not memorized this verse, please do so. Put it where you can see it often. Because you need to be reminded, we each need to be reminded that God is faithful. That we cannot make excuses for saying yes to sin. At the same time, the Lord is so faithful to help us. So let's look at um, one final promise this morning. It comes in the form of a statement. It forms the essence of the gospel. It's an unchanging, immutable promise that God gives us. It's one that each and every one of us should be familiar with. We should learn and understand it. The verse is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This passage is what we call the golden chain of salvation. It's well worth being familiar with. The Lord makes two statements here. Number one, we, believers in Christ, will be conformed to the image of Christ. Recently, we've looked at another verse in 2 Corinthians 3 that talks about being conformed to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another in this life. We call that sanctification. We call that maturity. We call that growing. That God is transforming us. And I'm here to tell you what you already know full well. That process is often painful. It's often discouraging because we're not where we want to be. Yet again, I fell to that same sin. The time that I've wasted being where I shouldn't be. But now, this is the other end of that. The essence of the gospel is that God will bring you safely to the heavenly shores and that you will be in that moment fully and finally conformed to the image of your Savior. There will be no more temptation. There will be no more regrets. But we will be fully and completely sanctified. Free of sin. Free from temptation. My fellow saints, this is the staggering proposition of the gospel. But notice, even this is actually not about you. It's about God. And God's glory. The key part of that verse, that he might be the firstborn, the preeminent among many brothers. That's the key. 
God is working out his plan for his glory through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not die in vain. His desire is for a people that are his own. Now again, let's look at what we've learned today. What was the promise that was made to the original recipients? Oh, this is a gospel promise. That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel and God gets the glory and we are the beneficiaries of this promise. What is the context? If you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, this will do very quickly. I got to land the plane here. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Verse 18, middle of the chapter. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's the eternal perspective. Verse 29, we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 37. In all these things, all the difficulties that we face in life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My fellow saints, this is a promise. Stand on it. Remind yourself of it. Over and over again. That God is at work in my life. God will not abandon the work that he has started in my life. This is about God and God's glory and actually not my performance. We can trust him. And as we trust him, increasingly, more and more, we develop this confidence as we walk with the Lord. One last verse I'd like to point out, and that's 1 Peter chapter 2. I pray that we will be encouraged and helped as we look at the promises of God today. As we learn to be a little more discerning, perhaps, in understanding the promises and taking the promises for ourselves. I heard a pastor recently remind his people that God's intent all throughout scripture is to have a people for his own through whom he can work and show his glory. That he can show himself strong on their behalf. Those statements are all throughout the Old Testament. And I'd like to, sh- I'd like to show you one in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2. I reference this often. Notice verse 9. He is going to take terms that, that are about the Old Testament. The Israelites. He's going to apply them to us. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. My brothers and sisters, you will do this with great vigor when you know the promises of God that are given to you. When you believe them, when you remind yourself of them, and when you stand on those promises. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this morning we give you thanks and we give you praise. Thank you for your precious promises that you've given us in your word. Thank you for the truth that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. That you are at work in our life. That we can be content in all circumstances. Because we know that you're with us. We know that you love us. We are relieved from the pressure of our own performance. But we can learn to trust you, to grow in you, and to stand on the promises that you give us. Thank you for the simplicity and the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not your efforts, not your works, not your religious performance, but believing that Jesus Christ died in our place, was buried and rose again. And we trust him completely as your provision for us, taking him as our Savior and Lord. Lord, we give you thanks, increase our faith, and help us to stand on the promises that you have given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.